Welcome to our first episode of the podcast, where we will invite guests to discuss all things related to Texas Specialty Courts. I'm Liz Wiggins, and I'm your host on the show this season. Before I tell you about today's episode, there are a few things I want to share. First, the Texas Association of Specialty Courts annual training conference this year is being held on March 26th through 28th in Fort Worth. See the show notes for a link to register to attend. As we get the season started, you may wonder who I am and how I ended up hosting the show. If you listen to the trailer, then you know I am currently the Communications Director for TASC, which is a nonprofit organization that builds and strengthens Texas Specialty Courts through collaboration, advocacy, and education. I began my law career at the Williamson County Attorney's Office. It was there that I first became involved in Specialty Courts. I later branched into private practice, then went back to government to work with the Judicial Commission on Mental Health before spending some time focusing on providing legal services to victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, and trafficking. Now, I am an enforcement prosecutor with another state agency. Throughout my legal career, I have stayed involved with specialty courts primarily because of my passion for addressing the root causes that bring individuals into the justice system. In my spare time, I continue to volunteer with several organizations. Many of the people you're going to hear from this season are people that I know or have a connection with through TASC. These are people with specific knowledge and experience that I believe are valuable to our listeners across our state. This podcast is intended as a tool for TASC to help specialty court teams to collaborate with each other and to learn from one another. In the interest of transparency, I will share that this is also the very first podcast I have ever created, which means you will be on a journey with me and with my guests as I navigate through determining the best questions to ask, the most relevant topics to cover, and the endless number of ums that I will utter this season. If you have questions or comments about the show, the contact details are going to be in the show notes. Tell me what you want to hear. Send me questions you want our guests to answer in future episodes. It is my goal to read every email I receive. Let's talk about today's episode. Judge Laura Barker is joining us to discuss striving for excellence in your specialty court programs. She is the presiding judge of County Court at Law Number 2 in Williamson County. The definition of excellence is the quality of being outstanding or extremely good. I've personally seen how passionate Judge Barker is about her specialty court programs and the dedication and time that she has actually committed to ensuring that they are designed to meet the ever-changing needs of the community. We actually met about nine years ago when I was a new lawyer and a baby prosecutor, and she was a classy boss lady of her own private practice. We became friends over the years, and I somehow convinced her to join me today on our premiere episode on the podcast. Thankfully, she knows I am still learning how to do this whole podcast thing because our episode actually cuts off as I am thanking her for coming on the show and before she can respond. It's completely okay to shake your head and laugh about this fact. I have done so myself many times since finishing this recording. So without further delay, let's get on with the show. Judge Barker, welcome to our first episode of the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Great. Before we get into everything about your wonderful legal career, um, can you tell us a little bit about your personal life? Like, who is Laura Barker? Well, um, 
Let's see. I am married to my husband, Alan. We've been married for about, let's see, 15 years now. I have a son, Gavin. He's 14. And we live in Georgetown, up in Georgetown, uh, Williamson County. Um, so I, I guess just a little bit about me as far as what I like to do in my personal life. We like to travel, um, like to try new things when we go travel as far as new cultures. Uh, we go hiking. Uh, we work out. At least I do. <laughs> My husband, not so much, but hopefully he won't be listening to this. <laughs> but, but, but we like to do some of those things. What's one of your favorite places that you've traveled to? Oh, one of my favorite places is Scotland. I've been a couple times and I absolutely love it. It is beautiful. Um, and, and, and if I could, I'd have a place there and, and go back and forth. Nice. I am completely jealous right now. I've always wanted to go to Scotland. It looks beautiful every time I see anything posted about that. So um, I'm definitely very jelly. And I think that that's amazing thing to aspire to the opportunity to go there as frequently as possible. That's wonderful. Um, so you mentioned that you've been married um, for what, like 15 years, you said. Did you grow up in Georgetown or Williamson County anyway? Or are you, did you like move here? No, I moved here. Um, I grew up, let's see, until I was about 10 in Lockhart, which is south of Austin. Then we moved to Austin where I went to high school, Bowie High School. Uh, graduated there in 95, and then I went to uh, Southwest Texas State University when it was still Southwest for my undergraduate. Um, got a uh, undergraduate degree in um, law enforcement uh, or criminal justice law enforcement, and then I went to St. Mary's University um, for my law degree. Nice. So what ended up like, inspiring you to go to law school? Um, I actually went to law school because I wanted to go into the FBI. Wow. And, okay. What were you hoping to do with, in the FBI? Uh, I, I wanted to um, actually be a field agent. And that was just one of the ways that you could go. You could get there faster to get a law degree. So um, when I went to law school, I interned. Um, I think it was in my second year, if I remember correctly, at a criminal defense firm. And so I did a bunch of work with clients, um, went into, of course, it was trial work, um, helping out the attorney and just kind of fell in love with helping out people. Um, and I, I think from there, you know, that was it for me. Wow. Nope. That, that makes complete sense to me. I have to say the life of an FBI agent sounds very exciting. I obviously don't have any personal experience to know it might not be that exciting in real life, but um, it's pretty interesting to see that that was something that motivated you and inspired you and then led you into this, this career now that you have, because it seems very different, but um, in a lot of ways, there's probably a lot of similarities, I'm sure. Uh, and that kind of brings me back to your journey of becoming a judge. Um, can you share a little bit about what that career looked like after you, you know, graduated law school? Um, it's interesting. You know, I, I was looking back. I actually did a um, sermon at my church 
a few years ago, they asked me to, as far as how I got to be a judge, where, how that led me to it, the specialty courts, and and looking back at it and what I actually, you know, talked to them about that day. It's interesting because even back when I was an undergraduate, um, I did a lot of, I started doing volunteer work, and that continued um, when I was in law school too. I did People's Law School, Habitat for Humanity, um, just different things like that, and that continued, of course, when I became an attorney, and I think you probably know this because um, I, I uh, was on the Williamson County Bar Association board for, I guess, six years total, um, became the president, but then also was a co-founder of the Women Lawyers section, which really is a... Um, I guess it's an arm of the bar, which is more a section of the bar, if you will, that is more dedicated to doing volunteer work, doing coats for kids, um, helping out with Hope Alliance, um, some just some different um, volunteer organizations. So I think, you know, getting to this point and becoming a judge and taking on the specialty courts, it's just me wanting to give back in different capacities and helping, if you will, in different capacities, right, with different types of things. And I think these specialty courts, because I did do veterans, um, take on veteran cases, mental health cases, um, when I was in uh, practice, in private practice, in my criminal defense practice. Um, but I think with the specialty courts, I thought as a judge that I could do a little bit more and make a difference in a different way. Yeah, and I have to say, so I should probably tell the listeners um, that you and I are actually friends and we've been friends for several years. And one of, I think, I'm trying to remember back when I first met you, you were in private practice, you know, being your own, I would say, boss woman um, of your practice and stuff. And I was, I think a baby prosecutor is the term, right? Um, and I just remember thinking like you really had your stuff together. You really understood what you were doing. And when I got involved with the woman lawyer section of the Williamson County Bar Association, it was it was exciting to learn that you had co-founded that organization and what it stood for because I was really passionate about wanting to give. Right. And I love your take on that. That's just, you know, serving in a different capacity, serving the community, you know, in a completely different capacity and. Um, with different skill sets than maybe you did, you know, before law school and during law school. So one of the things that I thought was interesting was during your, you know, campaigning um, to become a judge in your court was the fact that you knew what you were getting into. Like you were really passionate about those specialty court programs that they that they had in place already. And that was something that seemed to um, drive you for that specific bench rather than, let's say, a different a different um, position in the, in the courthouse. Uh, can you share a little bit about that, like uh, what prompted your interest in the specialty court programs and um, that specific courtroom? Uh, sure. So I think that for, you know, the DWI drug court, a lot of people, and, and it's hard with that court in particular sometimes because with our veterans court, people want to give to veterans. People want to help veterans, right? Um, and especially when I knew that, it, that 
the county court at law number two was um, a court that I would be in here if I if I won that election, I would be inheriting the Veterans Treatment Court. I was excited about that because for me, you know, our veterans have sacrificed so much. I think that we as citizens should be helping out our veterans, especially a lot of them that are coming back um, and are trying to, you know, acclimate back into civilian life and are struggling a little bit. I think that we should be helping them out. And that's what that Veterans Court is for. The DWI Drug Court not everybody really wants to help someone out, right, that uh, may be struggling with substance addiction, right? So it's a little bit harder, and we have to we struggle a little bit more with that court as far as getting funding sometimes and to get uh, folks to understand that they do have an addiction and they do need help and that there is, you know, not just alcohol or uh, other substances that there may be, it could be co-occurring with mental illness as well. So that's a little bit harder sometimes to get people to understand that. But it, to me, it's, and when I said this when I was campaigning, it's balancing justice, justice with compassion. And that's what these courts are for, to try to get people truly reformed when they're going through the courts and helping them. Yeah, and I, I am with you 100% on that. I think that uh, it, it is a lot harder and I've seen this across the state. It is a lot harder to get people to be as inspired to um, support like a drug court program or anything to do with like the substance abuse issue of it rather than uh, definitely the veterans treatment courts. People just really understand that a little bit more and they are a lot quicker to say, you know what, this we can help with, this this we can go out and, you know, try to get more funds for. Um, there definitely seems to be more, you know, more money resources, I guess, of where you can support that program versus a different program, versus like a substance abuse program like that. And right. in fact, we're seeing more mental health programs, I think, pop up as well. And one of the things that seems to be what you're talking about is the fact that even a DWI court or DWI drug court program, mental health plays a role in that. And even with veterans treatment courts, right? Mental health is, is an underlying issue a lot of times with all of the specialty courts. Um, and so even though it's not designated as like a mental health court, uh, my guess is, and I'm sure you can share with us um, that your your teams have to address a lot of mental health needs um, during the program. It, yes, if you do not address the underlying mental health needs, um, it doesn't matter if you address the substance abuse. Uh, typically, you would see that person uh, either back in the system again or uh, reoffending if you have not addressed the underlying mental health issue. Yeah. So that's very important to do. I agree. Can you share with us a little bit about like the types of tracks, like the populations that you serve for each of those courts, right? I think we can kind of guess, but it'd be helpful to know like, um, you know, who who is it that you're really, who's the, like the ideal candidate in those programs and like the different types of tracks that you have and the lengths of those programs? So typically, um, so when I inherited the DWI drug court program, um, it was just one track um, high risk, high needs. And that's typically what they tell you you should be taking in. So 
uh, someone at high risk of reoffending, you're usually going to be talking about um, someone that's had maybe extensive criminal history, right? Maybe someone that has some felony convictions, things of that nature, um, high needs in terms of uh, treatment needs, transportation, mental health needs, different needs like that. Um, so we do have that track. A few years into it, of course, we've made a lot of changes over the years um, with um, getting better assessments. Um, we, we have more staff now than we did before to help us with doing the proper assessments that we need to make sure we're taking in the right people. Uh, we've added another track uh, because we found that the population that we have here in Williamson County, we actually have a, a, a good population to bring in of low risk individuals, so low risk of reoffending, but have a lot of needs, so high needs. Um, so we have that separate track as well. Um, both tracks have a minimum of 12 months uh, to be in the program to complete it. That doesn't mean that they can't get extended if they need additional time, maybe they need more treatment, or maybe there's been some slip ups. Um, why they've been in the program and they have to get extended to stay in a little bit longer. But both are a minimum of 12 months and they do not, we don't mix them. So one will be at 4 p.m. and the other will be at 4.30. So they are separated. And we actually separate our tracks by gender. So within those tracks, um, you know, the females will come first and then the males will come separate. That is a best practice. Um, if you look at um, All Rise online, that is where you can find a lot of the best practice guidelines in that. It'll tell you that that is a best practice to separate them by gender if possible. Yeah. And while you mentioned best practices, um, what's, what's a, a good way to explain why best practices matter, right? I mean, I imagine for success overall, but can you share a little bit more, like, why that actually matters to follow these best practices. Um. So, so in explaining, so with our Veterans Treatment Court, for example, we do have two tracks as well. It is the same. We have a 2 p.m. track, which is our high risk, high needs population. And then our 4 p.m. is the uh, low risk, high needs. We do separate them by gender as well. So for instance, the females come in first, and like I said, that's a best practice. The reason it is a best practice, and we've actually discussed this and, and you know, received feedback from the females. Um, there's a lot of military sexual trauma that has happened, of course, with some of the females um, that has occurred while they were in the while they were in the military. Um, and so it, you can imagine standing in front of a group of males um, having to discuss um really anything or just you know being in front of them with their backs to them right um it is not comfortable for them and so um having that separated is a more comfortable environment for them so that they don't feel um uncomfortable while they're in a courtroom uh surrounded by by men that that's Thank you. That is a, a really good example of how that specifically that best practice really comes into application and why it's so important to apply that to your specialty court programs. 
Um, is that is that a more recent best practice that's come into place, or has that been in place for as as long as you've known? Um, not as long as I've I've been on the bench, and I've been on the bench for about eight years. Um, but it, it's been in place for a few years, at least, because we've had it in place for. Um, I want to say we've had, we've we've been doing it now for a few years ourselves. So I know it's been in place for a few years because usually we'll update our our best practices and every year we'll do a review of things when we go to the uh, national conference and we'll try to um, change things based upon uh, what best practices are, if at all possible, within our own court. Perfect. And when you mentioned the national conference, you're referring to the All Rise. Um, annual conference that they put on every year, right? Yes. And what can you share with us about like your, what do your like court teams look like, your treatment court team? So um, they tell you, so I mean, we obviously have a bigger staff for um, the Veterans Treatment Court, but I'll start with the DWI court first. We have a prosecutor, a defense attorney, of course, the judge, uh, we have a probation officer, a treatment provider, which is actually on staff with the probation department. Um, and um, we have a, a specialty court coordinator and a program case manager. And our program case manager um, actually does all the assessments prior to coming in and uh, throughout the program, um, we'll do the, uh, they do treatment meetings uh, prior to staffing with the treatment team to make sure everyone is uh, doing well within the program, provides us updates to us at staffing every week. Um, so that's our DWI court staff. Um, on the vet court side, we have all of those same team members in addition to that, we have the uh, justice outreach officer from the VA. And then we also have the local mental health authority, which is Blue Bonnet Trails. And we have, um, trying to think, uh, we also have um, a mentor coordinator. Hey. Yes. Okay. I hope I didn't forget anybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of people, <laughs> which kind of goes to my next question. Like, how do all these people work together? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, they work well together. And I think that, you know, every once in a while there can be an issue. So I'm not going to tell you that there's never any friction. But um, Usually, you know, that's the judge's role. You have to have a leader that's making sure everybody stays within their own lane. Um, very important because if, and I'll give you an example of that. Treatment, right? Every once in a while you have someone that wants to uh, make a recommendation as to treatment that is not a treatment provider. That is not their responsibility. It would be like me as the judge saying, I think this person needs to do uh, inpatient treatment. I can't do that. I'm not a treatment provider. That's not my, that's not my, um, my job to do that. I have to look at my treatment providers on there and say, what is the treatment recommendation here? If this is, for instance, if someone had a, um, relapse and, um, I don't know, use cocaine, right? Or something like that. 
And that's the only thing that happened. They've been showing up to everything, but they had a relapse and used cocaine. Well, usually that's just going to be a treatment recommendation. So I had to look at my treatment team to say, well, what, what do we do here? Yeah. So you have someone every once in a while that likes to give their own input that is not a treatment provider, and you have to tell them that is not not your role. you got to stay within your own lane. So it sounds like it's it sounds like you are very aware of what everybody's role should be and how they come together and contribute as a team as a whole um, and how important it is that they are all there because you have a lot of people on your teams, which which I think is great. It sounds like they all have to come together, work together for the success the success of the program. Um, do you find like in an ideal world would is there any like a role on your team that you would love to have exist for any of your courts? An additional role? Is that what you're asking me? Yep, like one that you don't have already. Um, I, I don't know that I need an additional role right now. I mean, maybe maybe if we had a dedicated, um, you know, mental health provider other than I mean, we have our local mental health um, provider, Blue Bonnet, but they are not um, just dedicated to do uh, everybody on the team. Right. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. So that, that might be something good if we had an additional treatment provider that just specifically did uh, private one-on-one -on -one that we could afford to do through a grant, but we just don't have that. Okay. That's, that's a really good, um, I, I appreciate that you were able to identify that because I, I think that that's something that a lot, especially courts, probably could relate to and wish that they also had that specific role. And, and, and I guess I should say, because with the Veterans Court, we the treatment, it goes through the VA. Um, it goes through, like I said, Blue Bonnet Trails, which is the local mental health authority, if we need to refer out there. We have some funding through a grant um, that sometimes we're able to use for a private provider, but we really don't have that much. So that's kind of what I'm saying. And on the DWI court side, we do not have um, funding separate to where we'd be able to say this is a separate person that we could do one on one just specifically for mental health. Yeah, that would be a good thing to have. I think you mentioned a little bit about the role of a judge in, you know, in that team. Can you share a little bit more about what you what your thoughts are and what your experience has been as far as what that role of a judge within the team should look like? Um, honestly, the, the role of the judge is very important because you have to have someone that is the clear um, leader, if you will, or the champion of the court, someone that's going to um, make sure that everyone is always on, on task, is always doing what they need to be doing. Um, you know, if there's like I said, every year the staff needs to be doing training or updated training, right, to make sure they're compliant with best practices. So whether that's going to the national training, whether that's going to state training, um, whatever it may be, and then coming back together, um, you know, usually we try to do quarterly meetings to make sure that, you know, outside of just our normal staffing. So quarterly meetings to make sure, is there anything that we're, we're missing, anything that we need to look at as far as 
um, issues within our courts that we need to talk about as a team. Um, also making sure that I think the judge needs to be cognizant of their, of their team members to make sure is the team okay, right? Because yeah. there's a lot of burnout that goes on um, in doing these types of courts. There's a lot of compassion fatigue. Um, so I think the judge just has a lot of responsibility to make sure that everybody's doing well, the program's running well. And then you have to make sure that you're going out there in the community, too, to make sure that you're promoting it um, or doing what you can. So there's there's just a lot that goes on, a lot administratively behind the scenes, making sure grant, you know, you're getting funding, that you've got sustainability more than most people think that goes into doing these courts. Yeah, it sounds like that is a lot of extra stuff in regards to like if you're considering your other dockets that you have, because this isn't the only thing you do, right? No, it's not the only thing. <laughs> so it sounds like this is there's still a lot of work for a judge to do beyond their regular workload. There's there's a lot to do. Yes, I'd, I'd say it's a lot of administrative work, a lot. You know, I know we talked about best practices and I want to kind of uh, circle back to that a little bit. You gave an example of one thing that you do in both of your courts actually to implement a best practice. Do you have any other best practices that would be a good example that you use um, in your courts or any either one of them, one or the other or both? Um, there's, there's a lot of examples of best practices. I mean, a best practice would be that um, you need to make sure that you're having staffing, um, whether it's every week, like for DWI court, we have staffing every week. Um, all staff members, like all key staff members have to be present for you to do staffing. You can't do staffing without, you know, one of your staff members being there. So an example of that would be you can't do staffing without your prosecutor there. Okay. You can't do, you can't do it without your defense attorney there. They have to be present in order for you to discuss if there's potential violations and how you're going to proceed forward on that. And, you know, I think that, you know, we've, we've talked about um, it really is a best practice that if there is a um, relapse or some sort of violation before your next court docket, you should be discussing that prior to the next court docket. So let's say that you had court on our court for DWI court is Tuesday. Um, for veterans court, we have it every two weeks. So let's say we had court and then right after there's a relapse, well, you can't wait until another week or two weeks to address it. You need to address it right away to see, you know, what do you need to do with that participant? Do you need to get them their treatment changed up? Do you need to get them into, um, you know, it could be that they need to go into inpatient if it's that bad. So this is you, you can't wait on that stuff. So that, those are the types of best practices. I mean, there's so many more, but that's just an example. Those are great examples. Thank you. I so I've seen you in action with your courts, and I know that you spend a lot of time making sure that your programs are following best practices, that they are you know, um, really focused on, I would say, the, the mission and the purpose, you know, why they were even implemented to begin with, um, and really focused on the people, the participants, and their 
overall health, uh, you know, the, the actual treatment for each of them. So I, I've seen I've seen them in action, and it's one of the reasons, frankly, that I really wanted you to be on our first episode to kick this whole show off is because I've just seen how hard you've worked on making sure that these programs are, you know, following everything they're supposed to, but just being the best that they can possibly be for the betterment of each of those participants that go through your program. So I, again, thank you for being here today. Um, and that's not the end of the show though, because I still have more questions, so don't get excited. <laughs> so <laughs> um, one of the things that I think come up a lot is, um, you know, funding. Funding and data are, are two things that I think are hot topics for people. Um, there, it's a little scary to start a program because you know, it's like, well, where am I going to get the money to start the program? Can you share a little bit about what your experience has been like when it comes to funding for your programs? You did a little bit earlier, I know, but um, can you expand on that a little bit? Oh, boy. You know, I never knew that I was going to know how to um, write grants eight years ago. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, in fact, they don't have a law school class on writing grants that I know of, at least not at my school. I didn't I didn't remember seeing one of those. No, no, I guess the closest you get is to brief writing. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> now, um, it's probably my least favorite thing to do is um, grant writing and, and to do that every year when it comes up. But it's it's a necessary evil, I guess. Um, we let's see. We have a. We had a governor's grant for both of the courts when I started. Um, our, our governor's grant went away on the DWI court um, several years ago, and then we did not renew our governor's grant for the, that court this year. And we applied for BJA funding, so federal funding, uh, several years ago for both courts. Um, it's pretty extensive. And you have to, of course, if you get the grants, you have to keep up with reports. Uh, usually, sometimes it can be monthly, sometimes quarterly. Um, and then, of course, your year report. So I, I would do it if it was me. Um, it can be overwhelming at first to, to look at it and then to, to get all the information together, turn it in and that. But I think that it is completely doable. Um, and it's something that is necessary, I think, for your program. Uh, for us, when we did it, uh, the BJA funding, the federal funding, we were able to get SCRAM monitoring for all of our participants when they're first coming in, coming into the court for the first phase, which gets them stabilized and into treatment so they can focus on that and not be worried about, um, you know, testing positive and, and, and whatnot. So um, that was really important and it was a game changer, I think, once we were able to do that. Uh, we did not get our BJA funding this, this last uh, year for the DWI court, um, but we're applying for different funding. And I think that if you don't get funding through a different source, you have to go through commissioner's court. And I've had to do that a few times too with different things. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to talk to anyone about it. Um. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because I was just going to ask, does this mean you're volunteering maybe that people could ask you questions uh, about that? Because this is this is definitely one of those things you mentioned um, several, several topics there. But coming back to the commissioner's court, 
uh, trying to get funding that way, it seems like that's a whole process as well, right? So maybe you're not writing a whole grant application, but I'm assuming there's a lot of preparation that goes into um, that conversation as well. There's a lot that goes into that for sure, because yeah, I mean, I guess every commissioner's court or every county is different. Um, so I can't speak to different counties, but um, I know that for our county, when you are applying for a grant, you have to ask permission first before you can apply. Um, and there's an agenda item request that has to go up and you have to put all the information in as far as what the grant is, what the ask is. And that's just to ask to apply. Um, so there's a lot that goes into it. Um, there's, I can tell you, if you are a veterans treatment court, I think the best uh, funding out there is probably the Texas Veterans Commission in the state. Um, they're not difficult to work with. They want to give funding to veterans treatment courts. Um, and so I think that's something that if you're a veterans treatment court, you probably should look into. That's a, that's a good tip. Thank you. That mm -hmm. is, that kind of ties back into data. I'm, I'm assuming that you utilize data in your reports and things like that to get the grants, to ask the commissioner's court for money, any of that. Um, how do you collect your data and, and what's been maybe something that you've learned through that process? It is very important to keep your data. Um, and that means you need to keep your your data on um, demographics, on the number of participants that have come into your program, if they completed it, if they did not, what the reason was. The you need to keep you know statistical information on applicants if you know even if they didn't, if you didn't accept them into the program, you need to uh, keep information as to why you didn't, what the reason was that you didn't accept them. So you need to keep information on all of that um, because that's going to be information that's going to be important for not only if you're applying for a grant, it's going to be important for, you know, if you're going to your commissioner's court, they're probably going to want to know that information too, to know how successful is your court. What applicants are you taking in and why aren't you taking other ones in? And, and I can tell you that, you know, if you're applying to like the Texas Veterans Commission, they're going to want to know that information, too. They're going to know why aren't you taking certain ones in? Uh, what's the reason? So you need to keep all that information. And also you need to know your arrest information. You know, how many how many veterans are arrested in your county? Uh, what what type of arrests, right? So DWIs, assaults, all this, all that type of information broke down by that. So they're going to want to know that information too, and you can get that from your from your jail. So all that information is important. That's good to know. Do you do you how do you like collect it? Do you have like a case management system, or um, do you just use an old fashioned Excel sheet? Like how do you collect this information? <laughs> Yeah, well, we used to. <laughs> until we got, uh, yeah, we used to have a spreadsheet in that until we got um, AIMS. It's a uh, software system that we use and uh, we put everything into it. Right. And so that software system that you use now um, to collect all that information throughout the process, 
that allows you to just make that report, right? Just to pull those numbers when you need them. It allows us to, we input everything in um, on the participant applicants and then it allows us to run reports off of it, yes. Okay, that sounds so much better than an Excel sheet, I just have to say. (laughs) (laughs) So what about um, local resources? Can you share with us some of the best local resources that you really utilize? I know you mentioned Blue Bonnet earlier, um, but are there other local resources that you've uh, been able to utilize for your programs? Um, you know, we used to have when I started a um, as, as far as like a nonprofit foundation for the DWI Corps, but it had to be closed out um, because the board, uh, a lot of the board moved away. So that's no longer in existence. There is a foundation for the Veterans Treatment Court, um, which provides services that um, are funding for, I guess the best way I can say it is anything that the grant does not take care of, the uh, foundation can take care of usually. Okay. Can you give an example of that? Because I I feel like I remember grants are very limited of what they'll cover, correct? Like what types of things that they'll cover. Um, what kind of things fall through the cracks that are not covered by grants that um, that you've seen with specialty courts that you still need funding for a lot of times? Well, um, the foundation has covered rent uh, for a participant before, um, car repairs. Um, we do have some budgeting for transportation. Uh, but not very much. And so they've also uh, taken care of some transportation uh, fees before uh, on some of the participants. So some things like that. Nice. So they kind of act, they kind of assist with some wraparound services, so to speak, the financial aspect of the wraparound services. Yes. Okay. That's very helpful. And that's something right now that you're missing from your DUI drug court program then. Yes. Okay. That would be very helpful. Um, to have something like that. Do you uh, do you have any other local programs that that you guys um, utilize a lot with your specialty court programs? Um, like I said, we have Blue Bonnet, who's our local mental health authority. Um, our probation department is involved. Um, they're actually uh, part of the staff. Um, there's some other nonprofits, I guess, if you will. I mean, there's. I'm trying to think. Um, we, you know, Life Steps is involved up here. Sometimes the classes that they're referred to. Um, a lot of the treatment programs, though, so the um, intensive outpatient is through our probation department. Okay. Um, That's good to know. So not all, I know not all probation departments are, are equal and not all uh local mental health authorities are equal. So they don't all have like the same programs everywhere, but it sounds like you've been able to utilize your probation department and the local mental health authority to bring the treatment services that you need for your program together. Yes, I think we're pretty, um, I'm I'm grateful, I should say that with our probation department, we do have a, a treatment provider that is on our team and that we're able to utilize through them. Great. That is good. What what does like success look like in your programs? 
how, what would you define as success for them and, and what have you seen as successful outcomes? Are you asking me about statistics or? No, more like just individual people. What, is, what does that actually look like? Um, like, what does it mean to go through that court and, and complete it successfully? What does the end of that look like? Well, for a lot of them, I mean, it's, you know, you'll see them get new jobs, better paying jobs. Um, they're, you know, they're reconnecting with their families, you know, maybe someone that they haven't talked to in years. Um, you see them become better fathers, husbands. Um, they're just, it, it's just, that's what success is to me in looking at a lot of these participants. Um and that's not, yeah. yeah, and that's not going to show up in data a lot of times, right? Like that's not going to show up in the numbers a specific way, what you're describing. And I think that's really important because when I was in private practice and I had several clients go through your programs and I remember um, one of the things I saw frequently with people who were doing really well in your program was they went to the gym a lot and they worked out a lot and it showed. And so months would come by and they looked very healthy um, and we're very happy um, in a lot of ways. And so, it, I mean, how do you how do you put that down to say, hey, it's going well when, when you're when you're working out or when you look great, I guess, you know, six months, 12 months down the year, down the road, you know. So I, I think it's really important sometimes for people to understand that what success looks like, it could look very different for different people. But those things, those non-tangible things are really, really important to the community, right? It is. It, it, it's a quality of life. It, it gets better. And it's different, and it happens at different times for everybody that's in there. I always say it's usually, you know, graduation. I look back, and I'll, I'll you know, see the changes in everybody. But, you know, usually you'll see these participants come in when they're at their worst, right? It's the worst time in their lives. Uh, when they're pleading into the court or they're coming into the court for the first time. So they're not they're not smiling. They're not too happy. Right. Um, but, you know, that'll change at some point. So sometimes it could be a couple months into it for some of them. For some of them, you don't see it where they start smiling until, you know, maybe it's three fourths of the program through. But when you start to see that, um, it's, it's really something special. It, that That's that's why, you know, we do these programs. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the graduation. So I've seen a lot of photos of graduations for specialty court programs, and I hear a lot about the emotional side of watching people, you know, complete their journey through these programs. Um, can you share a little bit just about what that experience is like when you, because you've had a lot of graduations. Um, can you share a little bit about that, what you've, what you've observed? It, it is, you know, I mean, I can remember my first graduation um, having to, and it was a veterans court graduation, mind you, um, which was pretty emotional at the time, um, you know, and, and I've learned to, <laughs> over the years, <laughs> you know, try to, to curb, you know, my responses to things, because um, you have to. But it, it is very emotional. They, they've come so far. A lot of things have changed for them. And um, whether it's in the DWI court or the Veterans Court, and it's, it's very um, awe-inspiring to see. 
I mean, you, you get very excited for them and you're happy for them. And um, it's just wonderful. I get, you know, uh, back in February in our veterans court, uh, we had a, um, a graduate that um, it, it was it was pretty wonderful. He came back and he when he went through the program I and mean, he was in for 12 months, I mean, he completed it and everything just fine. But um, he he's a singer um, and he and going through the program, he's things started changing for him. He um, had some, I guess, inroads right into Nashville and made a video and doing really well. And um, so he came back and he he sang at graduation. And I mean, wow, it, it, it was pretty great. <laughs> that is yeah. pretty great. That's awesome. I love that. Um, so. I know under your leadership, these programs have really grown and and changed, right, for the better, I would say, um, over the years. Where do you see these programs, your two programs, going in the future? Well, I mean, I mean, there's some things that we can do. I mean, we're always striving to be better, right? Always trying to stay up with whatever best practice is, is new and, you know, to improve upon it. Um, we, we talked about, I think one thing that's kind of lacking is once they leave, sometimes some of them have a good recovery network set up. They stay in recovery. They have people they can contact and call. Some don't. Um, and if they don't stay, you know, in contact with, you know, some some whether it be that they're going to recovery groups or they're they're staying in contact with someone that they can reach out to if, if they're in a bad place, then sometimes, you know, that means they can fall off the rail. So we talked about alumni groups. I think that we've got a couple individuals that, um, at least in our veterans court, that are uh, interested in starting up an alumni group. Um, so that might be something that we get going here in the near future, hopefully. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I think that, you know, it's often that people, you know, they successfully complete something with the courts and then life is still happening, right? And they have to go back into that life. And um, now they don't have the same support system that they had while they were in the court, but we can't keep people in these treatment courts forever. So I think it's wonderful. And I think it's wonderful that you're, you know, that your, your people who've actually been through this are saying we might want to start something like that because it's their program, right? It's their opportunity to invest back into, um, you know, the people that are coming behind them in the program. So that sounds amazing. And I hope to see that actually. So, oh, I'm sorry. Were you about to say something? No, go ahead. Okay. So I have to say, um, I like to, you know, I'm going to wrap this up with asking for three recommendations. And the first thing I'm going to ask you is a recommendation for a useful tip. You know, maybe something that you wish you knew beforehand, uh, before you started, uh, you know, before you became a judge of, over a treatment court. Um, what kind of useful tip could you share with our listeners today? Well, um, if you're asking me about what I would have known beforehand or what I wish I knew beforehand, um, Personally, for myself, it's just you, you got to make sure you take time for yourself. Um, always just make sure you're, you're, you know, looking for 
Um, I know when when I'm getting a little <laughs> too, you know, I, I, and I and my staff knows too when I need a break. Like I'm I'm getting too fatigued and I'm getting burnt out. So you need to make sure that you're looking for that and you take, you know, whether it be a couple of days off or whatever it may be, because you're not doing anyone any good. Least of all the, you know, your staff members or the participants in your program. If you continue to work through that, if you're burnt out. So you need to make sure that you do that. And I know that there's been a couple of times that I've probably continued to work in the past when I shouldn't have. So I wish someone would have told me that. <laughs> That's a good tip. Um, I do it now. I just, I stop and I, you know, take a day or two off and just, uh, whether it be that I do a staycation, go get a massage, whatever it may be to just distress, right? You have to do that so that you're better for the, the uh, participants that are coming before you. Yeah, I imagine it's probably difficult for some team members to turn to the judge and say, hey, you need a timeout. <laughs> you need to go take a break, you know, take a breath. Um, and I hope that this helps people either say that or that, uh, you know, that judges become more aware and also just know it's okay to take that moment, right? This is important work but you do your best work when you're rested and able to do it and not not when you're you know just running on fumes well you know the funny thing about that is is when you've got a, a my court coordinator or administrator has been with me she's not actually part of the treatment team she's just she's my court administrator for court two but she's been with me for 21 years so if you can imagine, she knows every, everything about me pretty much and all my moods. So she feels comfortable enough to tell me when I break. <laughs> um, since I know her, I actually believe that. <laughs> that's good to know. Yes. That's, I think everybody needs somebody like that in their life to say, yeah, not today. <laughs> That's great. What about a good resource that you would recommend to our listeners? Um, as far as good resource, um, I would say just going online to All Rise. Um, anytime we get a new staff member, which there's, you know, turnover from time to time in any of the positions, because uh, you can imagine there's new prosecutors sometimes. And so you got to do onboarding. And what I mean by onboarding is, is you have to you need to send them the information for best practices. You need to give them your policies and procedures, the participant manual to read. Um, just um, there's videos on uh, anything that you can think of as far as what the prosecutor's duties are, defense attorney's duties, all the roles and responsibilities for everybody on the team and just different things about specialty courts on all rise. And we direct them to that and then have them read, like I said, all of our stuff as well. So I think it's a very good resource to just go on there and you'll get anything and everything that you would want. I agree. They have a lot of wonderful information. Um, what about an important event that you would recommend for other people to attend and, and why would you recommend it? Um, well, so I, I think I probably referenced this before. Depending on what court you are, type of court you are, and what you're doing, 
um, the Texas Center for the Judiciary has training every year for it. It is it's it's DWI courts, basic and advanced. The basic training is very good. If you have never done any training whatsoever, it will give you, you know, just the foundations right for a, a DWI court. And then the advanced gives you a little bit more and it's free training if you register. So I think that's good training. Um, Texas Association of Specialty Courts, it is good overall training for all types of specialty courts, I think. So whether you're mental health, your veterans, your DWI, drug, I think juvenile, uh, family. So all the different courts, it has a little bit of something for everyone. Um, and then the uh, All Rise Conference once a year, it can be difficult because it is expensive, but it, it has training for all courts. And for me, for veterans courts, that would be the training to go to if you're a veterans courts, because you can actually send your um, they have a for law enforcement reps. They have a specific track for that. And they also have for mentors, a separate track for that, a boot camp. You kind of I mean, for us to go, we have a. Um, we put training in there and our, our grants to be able to afford to go. So that's why I say you probably have to plan for that and ask for it in a grant, but it's yeah. good training as well. That's a good point. That's actually a great way to think about how to accomplish getting your team there. Like you said, just plan for it with your grants. If that's one of the expenses because they all rise as their conference um, in different states, right? Every year they kind of rotate through several states. They do. I know last year it was in Houston, which was good because um, anytime it's in um, Texas, Texas Associates, Texas Association of Specialty Courts, they do it together with All Rise. So it's kind of combined, I think. Yeah. And it yes, because we were there last summer, which I got to see you there. Um, it was hot in Houston, but it was a great location, I thought, and I loved attending. I've also been to the one in uh, Nashville, I think it was, and a beautiful location again. And I think, but again, the expense, right? Having to travel, you're talking about usually, you know, flying places, hotels, all that kind of stuff, expenses that you have to add in. That's a little bit more than you would with a, you know, a local, a local right. conference. So, but there is so much information at that conference that every time I've gone, they just, I love what you pointed out is about the different tracks that they have. And they just have just, I mean, just a ton of information happening um, for just about every kind of specialty court that you could have. So I think that's that's a great recommendation. Uh, well, um, I could probably keep you here asking you more and more questions, uh, but I also know that you have a lot more important things to be doing. <laughs> um, but I do appreciate you coming today and sharing this information with our listeners and just helping us to, um, you know, bring important information about Texas Specialty Courts to people across. And that's where I cut Judge Barker off with my recently acquired podcasting skills. Thanks for listening to our first episode on the podcast. I originally told you we would be dropping an episode once a month, but I have a surprise for you. I'll be dropping our second episode of the season in just one week. 
On our next episode, I speak with Tina Lopez, the director of the Hidalgo County Adult Probation Department, to discuss the role of probation within specialty court programs. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, see our show notes to contact us with questions or comments, and find links to information discussed today. Some food for thought until we meet again for another episode. Consider how your role within a specialty court program helps to serve the program goals. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your shows.